Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a class from our 2022 Elul Learning Series. Today, the goal is really, really simple. The goal is to get used to the concept of what a Gabbai is and what their responsibility is up here at the Bima when we're standing at the Torah table. So when we're standing at the Torah table and the Torah comes out, we need somebody who can be responsible for making sure, first of all, that things go well and that the pomp and circumstance, right, the the ceremony, the the ceremony kind of of the whole circumstance um, goes well. We we want the we want the ceremony of um, of the whole Torah service to go smoothly, but it's also not a Broadway show. So what a gabbai is is somebody between at the Torah table is somebody somewhere between the role of a stage manager to ensure that things are going smoothly, but they're also kind of like a host at a party. Now, the idea of a gabbai is that it comes from the idea of gava, of contribution. So the idea of a gabbai emanates from this word beetle, have you ever heard of this? The idea of a beetle in a Jewish township, right? B-E-A-D-L-E. So some people interchangeably use that English word, the beetle or the parnas for the job of the gabbai. Because initially, I saw that thumbs up. Initially, the job of the gabbai in a service, in a community, was the collection of the resources to ensure that the community could tick, right? To make sure that things could click along, to make sure that the community could um, meet, continue to meet, because it takes a tremendous amount of resources to run a community. But there's a differentiation that we're going to make in this class, which is the difference between a floor gabbai and a Torah gabbai. This is not about being a floor gabbai. A floor gabbai is the person who's responsible for ensuring that people feel radically welcome in a community, for ensuring that stuff, as in the religious relics, so to speak, that we utilize in the service, all of the holy vessels and ornamentation and things that we're utilizing, that stuff, all that stuff in a sanctuary space, it has to be managed and it has to be handled. And most of that is handled by floor gabayim. Their job, primarily, I think about as, anyone know what the phrase is to not burden the community? Right, to Marshall Kramer saying, tircha de tzibora, which doesn't sound like Hebrew to me. It's Aramaic, right? It's kind of, and it, it comes from our rabbinic sources in um, kind of a conversational sense, right? The, and it, it is a conversation, it's a topic of conversation, right? Were you with services Shabbat morning? It took them 15 minutes to get the Torah out of the ark and onto the table. They took out the wrong Torah. It was rolled wrong, right? It is, it's a conversational matter, right? It's a matter of community. So, those are floor gabbis. 
That is not what this class is about. This class is about how to manage what happens up at the Torah table. And those Gabaim have two responsibilities. One is liturgical, and two is corrective oversight. And one is liturgical, and two is corrective oversight. And I'm going to give this packet digitally as well. So anybody who's online, I'll send this along. I'll send the link. At the end of the class, I'll put it in the, um, in the chat so that you can get access to it as well. Yeah, I just saw people feverishly taking notes. Thank you in advance. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So the two jobs, the liturgical, is, is really where we're going to start. And we're going to spend a couple of weeks, maybe three weeks, on that liturgical element. The liturgical is when the gabayim, that's plural for gabai, when the gabayim are responsible for running the service up here at the Torah. I think of the gabaut liturgy as the liturgy from the moment that the Torah goes on the table to the moment that the Torah goes into the arms of the person who is going to parade it and bring it back to the ark. You don't need to memorize that, but I'm letting you know that those are my parentheses for the responsibility of the Gabaim. Okay? And we're going to spend, it's going to take a couple weeks, maybe three weeks to get through that liturgy. And you'll see what I mean by liturgy because it's not quite the same as going through a sidor. And then there's the job of the Gabaim at the Torah to make sure that the Torah scroll that's being read from is being read correctly according to the Masoretic tradition. So there were dots, or as my teacher, Dr. Bert Vazotsky, calls them, jots and tittles, right? Little dots um, that tell us how we get punctuation in our text and how text is musically chanted. And it also tells us how... Um, how the text is broken down syntactically, which is partially done with the trope, and it's partially done with actual punctuation. So we have music notes, and we have punctuation, and we have the vowelization, the nikud, these little dots on the text. And all three of those things are missing from the scroll because they were never there, right? It's really unfair to say that they're chaser, to say that they're missing, because the scroll never had them. But we have a tradition of reading it according to the pointillated text that the Masoretes, which we'll learn about later when we get to parts, you know, four and five as we get to the corrective tradition, they dedicated their, themselves to this craft of having it read correctly. And the assumption, I want you to hear this correctly, the assumption is that anyone who is reading the Torah is probably going to miss something. The assumption is that anyone reading the Torah is probably going to miss something. And what is the primary way that the Jew is intended to take in Torah, according to our tradition? Through hearing it, right? And that's for several reasons. We hear that in Kriyat HaTorah, in the chanting of Torah. It is meant to be chanted. It's a dedicated chanting tradition. And the reason why it's so important to get that vocalized text correct is because, first of all, the Torah is a precious, and by precious I mean expensive and rare document, 
And not everybody has one. Not everybody even has a Megillah for Megillah Esther, a scroll, right? Even that commission is particularly expensive. So not everybody has one in front of them. In fact, nobody except for the person reading has it in front of them. And the second thing is, even if they did, literacy is uh, uh, the idea of um, widespread and popular literacy, the ability to read, is a very modern concept. There's no assumption that people would either have access to like a codex, a book, even if they did have an Eitzchayim Chumash from JPS, right? There's no assumption that people would have the literacy to be able to follow along. We are assuming that people's primary way of experiencing the text is auditory. So we need to get that reading just correct. So that's the secondary rule of Gabayim. So just again, this class is to focus on reading from the Torah and the Gabai's roles beside the Torah, those two Gabai's at the Torah, side by side, at the Bima, at the Torah table, the reader's table, which is sometimes called the Shulchan, because that is the word for table in Hebrew. So up here at the table, these two Gabaim have two roles each. We'll talk about the differentiation, but both of them have the roles of liturgically getting us through the service and correcting. Before we get into the Chomer, the material of this, are there any questions on those two big ideas or on the context of the class? No? We're good? Oh, okay, Tybal, yeah. Sorry, but so how many uh, in each role does on a normal Shabbos, is there one floor and one Torah Gabbai, or are there sometimes more? Wonderful question. We always have two Gabbaiim at the Torah, and there is a Gabbai Rishon, which we're going to call in the text that you'll see G1, and a Gabbai Shani, G2. We've got a first Gabbai, a primary Gabbai, and a secondary Gabbai at the Torah. Some communities are lucky to have four or five floor Gabbaiim. Many communities, Taibo, have just one floor Gabbai who's their ritual director or one volunteer like Mike Harris serves as the primary, he would be what we call a floor Gabbai in Daily Minion. So as you're watching in our Daily Minion here in our community, the example would be that Mike Harris on a Monday morning is the floor Gabbai, and then Larry Herman often serves as Gabbai Rishon, and we'll talk about how you can tell that he's in that role, not just by where he stands at the table, but by what he's doing. And then various people play the role of that secondary person at the Torah. Okay. But always two people at the Torah table and a variety of numbers of people on the floor. I'm, I always vote for more floor Gabaim. I think it's very helpful, but they have to have defined roles because if everybody's giving out the second aliyah, we're going to have a problem. Right. So we have to coordinate. <laughs> we have to make sure that we've got a coordinated effort. All right, so we're going to talk about some really great basic trivia for Gabaim to know, and we're going to work our way into um, the text. I'm going to hand this text to the folks who are in the room, and then, um, at the, like I said, at the end, for those who are online, I'll give you a link to find this text online. So David Cherney, who has a very similar last name to me, uh, it, this is actually from Beth MF. Um, they prepared this incredible Gabbai booklet, 
And I made some changes, but very few. I've left some of their proprietary stuff in because I think it's worth discussing. It's a brilliant Gabi guide. So why recreate something that's already in existence? Um, and before, I'm going to ask for those who have the packets to not peek in for this part for just a moment. We're going to play a little game about uh, about Torah readings, okay? So I, I need my cheat sheet to make sure that I haven't missed anything, though I did once have to memorize this for a master's exam. So let's make sure that I can get this right. We have a certain number of Torah readings each given day when we read Torah. So we have to start with the idea of when is the Torah read. So the first trivia question is, when do we read Torah? Four times. When? Four times. Way more than four times. That's a great guess. I mean, it's a great suggestion of an answer, but way more. Well, yes. four times in a regular week and then extra four holidays. Right, way more for holidays, right? So four times in a regular week, but let's get even more specific. Barbara, you you unmuted, so go for it. Yeah, Monday morning, Thursday morning, Shabbat morning, and uh, Shabbat Mincha. Great. So we read those four specific times during a week, which is exactly what Tybal was referring to. I want to make sure, since we're drilling down into this idea, that those of you who are here understand that as we lift ourselves out of Shabbat, Shabbat afternoon, we enter into the mindset of the following Shabbat's parasha, the following Shabbat's Torah portion. So, for example, this Shabbat morning, this coming Shabbat morning, we read Parshat Shofetim. That will be the last of the four times this week that Let's not get into it because it was Rosh Chodesh, but last of the four times this week that, that we read um, uh, Shoftim. And then we move to Kitetse in the afternoon of Shabbat. And we will read Kitetse also a second time Monday morning, a third time Thursday morning, and then again on Saturday morning. When else do we read Torah besides those times? There are other occasions. Rosh Chodesh, so once a month, and sometimes Rosh Chodesh is one day, and sometimes Rosh Chodesh is two days. Great. When else? Morning. Great. So fast days, we have fast days during the year. So the fast days are uh, fixed on the calendar. There are three fast days that are observed in association with the cycle of the destruction of the temples that are observed uh, publicly. And then there's also... Um, uh, one unrelated sort of one uh, on our calendar as well. And on all of those, I try to stop myself from like going off on side tangents into what each of these fast days are. You just need to know that there are a few fast days on our calendar. Each of them besides Tisha B'Av and Yom Kippur are sun up to sundown fast days. And we read Torah twice each of those days in the morning and in the afternoon. And in fact, there's also Haftarah. We're not going to get into that because you don't need Gabbai's for Haftarah. But there you go. You learned that. So we read Torah so far four times during the week, including Shabbat morning and afternoon. We also read it on Rosh Chodesh, on fast days. What else? Pilgrimage, the three pilgrimage plus the two high holy day. The three what? Oh, pilgrimage. That was the word. The three pilgrimage festivals. So the three festivals, which I I would, uh, I like to go in order of Sukkoth. Uh, and uh, followed by Pesach, followed by Shavuot. Okay, so those three pilgrimage holidays, each of those times, so 
Two of those holidays have days that are also in-between days, interim days, that we call Chol HaMoed, the mundane days of the festival, which means eh, we don't have as many rules, but there are observances. On Sukkot, we do things in the sukkah, and we shake the lulav and smell the etrog. On, I like to smell the etrog. Um, on, on Pesach, we still observe the dietary laws and observe certain liturgical things like reading Torah. So on these interim days, in addition to the uh, Yom Tov days themselves, the days of the festival, which fall at each end of those two festivals, Sukkot and Pesach, we read Torah all the way through both of those. Shavuot's just the two days. There's no interim. Okay? He's just got the two days of festival, and we read Torah those days as well. We're still missing at least four times that I can think of. We've got some later biblical holidays. We've got... That's way later, yeah. Yeah, so Yom Hatzma'ut has a much later assigned reading. Great. And to go way back calendrically, I would add Hanukkah has a reading for every single day. Right? Very similar to each other, but slightly different for each day. And also Purim. We have, uh, we have Torah reading. And we have Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Okay? So we also have those days. Um, and, uh, I also neglected to mention that there's the fast of Esther. Okay, I'm checking my list. Oh, we got it all right. Without looking at the list, we got, we got it all, folks. Okay, so we've got all of, of the days on which we read Torah. Now, we're going to do a cool building up trivia game, okay? And you'll get the papers, you'll see this too. So, the minimum number of Torah readings, I'm going to give you a freebie. The minimum number of Torah readings is three Torah readings. Minimally, at a time, we do three readings of Torah in a row, correct? Never fewer than three readings, traditionally, from the Torah scroll at a time. When do we typically, traditionally, read Three aliyot. Of all those times we just mentioned, when do we read three? Shabbos mincha. David. Great. Shabbat mincha. Daily minion. Daily minion in the mornings. Great. When else? Purim. Fast days. Also on Hanukkah, we have three days, unless it's overlapping with one of the other special occasions. All of those have three aliyot. I want to be very, very clear when we talk about this, because this will get very confusing quickly if we don't differentiate. There is the chanting of Torah for an Aliyah, and there is taking the honor of an Aliyah. Both are about coming up to the Torah. Both involve coming up to the Torah scroll, which is why they're both called Aliyah, which means ascent. It means coming up. But it's possible to be honored by coming up to the Torah and simply reading blessings before and after. I think everyone who's present knows this, but I want to be clear that when I say coming up for the honor of an Aliyah, I am referring to coming up to say the blessings, and I may try to be really specific and say that. Coming up to say the blessings for an Aliyah does not necessarily mean you're chanting Torah, but coming up to chant an aliyah from the Torah. When I say that, what I'm, when I say aliyah in that context, coming up to chant an aliyah from the Torah, I mean, it's Monday and it's one of three readings and I'm chanting from the Torah or Marshall's chanting from the Torah or Rick's chanting from the Torah, right? So that's an aliyah as in a reading as opposed to an honor. And sometimes the same person does both. That was the original way 
but this is more democratizing. We've now split out those two possibilities, allowing for somebody who is not prepared to be a chanter from the Torah to be honored, even if they're not chanting from the Torah. That's an invention, it's a ritual invention of our tradition, a ritual innovation that developed in order to allow for more people to be honored, even if they weren't reading from the Torah. When do we read four aliyot from the Torah? When do we get four? Rosh Chodesh, that's a famous one, absolutely. Great. What else? Those interim days, Cholomoed. So for, for Pesach and Sukkot, the interim days also. Cholomoed, we, we get those um, four aliyot instead of five. And that the one that often gets slipped. Um, that's an easy one to, to miss because we'll talk about it in just a second. When do we get five aliyot? Rosh Hashanah, but also Yom Tov, any pilgrimage festival gets the five. So what's confusing is that on the first, and if you're outside of the land of Israel, second days of Sukkot or Pesach, we have five aliyot each day. And then on the third day, when we move into Chol HaMoed, assuming that it's not Shabbat, right? when we move into Chol HaMoed, we go down an aliyah. We go down to four aliyot. Okay. Then, so five is, it goes, three is daily. Four is Rosh Chodesh and interim days. Five is the festivals. When, when with fast it's days, Shabbat. excluding Yom Kippur, which well, was... Yeah, but the other fast day gets five, or fast days get five, right? Or four the or fast five. days get three. Well, fast days only get three, okay. Correct, yeah. And then and then uh Rosh Hashanah gets five, Yom Kippur gets six, and Shabbat gets seven. And the interesting thing, so this is like 300 level for those of you who are, who so far have said, I already knew everything that she said so far. So I feel very smart. I hope that's what you're saying to yourself is that last part. Also, I feel very smart that I knew everything Kendra Chorney said so far. Very importantly, I want you to know that if one of these days that gets five or six aliyot falls on Shabbat and not all of them can fall on Shabbat calendrically, but if it does, we take that very same reading and we split it into seven readings. You can see this the next time you pick up your High Holy Day Machsor, you can see the way that divisions are done, especially on Shabbat, how it's specially broken down. There are a couple of exceptions to this, like when certain holidays fall on Shabbat and readings are changed, but those are the rare exceptions to the rule. We're not getting into exceptions right now. I'm teaching you the, the claw. I'm teaching you the general principle. Okay. So we get every day's three. Rosh Chodesh is four. Festivals are five. Yom Kippur gets six, but nothing's better than Shabbat. I want to add one more concept on, and then we're going to move on to something else with the aliyot. One more concept on. You might have heard people refer to these aliyot by also a name, right? So you might have heard them referred to by the name that's associated with their number. 
So the first aliyah is Rishon, because Rishon means first, right? Second aliyah, aliyah Hashnia. We're going to talk about that, not Shani. We're going to talk about that. Okay, we'll talk about the numbering and the grammar of that. It's very complicated. Each of the aliyot are named after the number that the that um, the person is a is in the order of the reading. No, the number that the aliyah is in the order of the reading. So whether you're referring to the person reading the Torah or the aliyah itself or the honoree, the point of reference is this is the second reading. This is the third reading with two exceptions. Not one exception, two exceptions. The first is, you could even say three, but I, I would go with two exceptions. One is maftir. What's the maftir? Isn't it the last three? The conclusion. Be, before the, and it's usually the person who's doing the haftarah. We're doing great. Maftir. We're doing great. Keep spinning. Great, great. Keep going. Anyone else want to contribute? Le haftir really is the verb. Good. Laftir is the verb. Good. Which means? Lehaftir, I've heard of. It's a um, lehaftir, and then maftir is the noun, and haftarah is a noun, something like that. Yeah, and it means to? To finish or conclude, yes? No? It, yeah, it's like, it, it's uh, it's so interesting. We were just talking about this in class today. It kind of means conclusion, but it also has the contronymial fancy word. It has the contronym effect. It's like a pseudo contronym where it sort of means the opposite of itself, where it sort of means commencement because maftir also means kind of to open, right? So really? to, to close, but it also kind of means to commence, to open. So it's being used a bit, a bit, not tongue in cheek. I don't know what the word is. A, a little ironically, but maftir means to close up. And it also means to to uh, open up, right? And to open up to the books of the prophets. So a maftir is going to be, when do we use maftir? When do we refer to the final aliyah as maftir? When there is the haftarah, right? When there's a haftarah, correct. So this is really important. So haftarah and maftir share a root. And most importantly, in that root, they share the letter tet, not tav. Okay? I don't care about the vowelization, haftorah, haftara. What matters to me is that you get that the T sound is not from the same letter as Torah. Torah is with that tav from the last letter of the alphabet. And if we were in a room with a big whiteboard and this were, you know, 2002 instead of 2022 with our current hybrid situation, I would draw for you maftir and haftarah and you'd see the parallelism in the two words. But I want you to know that maftir is only used to refer to the last aliyah when there is a haftarah. Bonus. Again, for those who are, right, there are those who, for whom this is very new stuff, and there are those for whom this is not at all new. There's another exception to the, the numerical names of the aliyot. There are actually two. So if you can find the bonus one, maybe extra points for you. What's the other exception to what we call an aliyah when it's not a maftir and it's not by a number? Oh, um, 
there are two possibilities. When is it? Is it when a B'nai Mitzvah comes up? No. It's when you add one. Yes. So I can't right, remember no, the word. Right. So when you add one, so good. Was that Barbara? Yeah. That was really good. Although, Tybal, you're right. It's very special. When a Barbat Mitzvah comes up, we do special stuff, and we are going to talk about that. But Barbara's right. It's it's Hosafa, every additional aliyah. So one thing that we're going to do when we get to that section on corrective stuff that Gabaim can do at the Torah, it will unlikely ever be your job since you're in a synagogue with approximately 75 rabbis. It's unlikely that it'll ever be your personal job to do this, except for maybe Rick, who teaches us in the school. But one can subdivide the already traditionally divided Torah readings such that we create more than the number of aliyot that are traditionally assigned to that day. Let's use Shabbat because it's what we're familiar with, many of us, okay, either the weekday or Shabbat. So typically we would have seven aliyot followed by the maftir. But let's say I took that seventh aliyah and in a way that's kosher to the tradition, I subdivided it into two aliyot. Now that first half of the seventh aliyah is my seventh aliyah. And that second half is going to be called actually the aharon. So every time you do a hosafa, if I were to split multiple ones, that was a trick question. I didn't mean to trick you, Marshall, at all. You're right. It's called the hosafa until we get to the last one, which is called Aharon. The only reason I know this is that when I came here, true story, the way that fifth grade Shabbat was run, we did something like 62 aliyot to the Torah at once, and we subdivided the whole darn full kriya for Marshall must remember many of these Shabbatot where all the students came up to the bima and we, we did it all by basically three all three psukim, three verses at a time. And it was Hosafa, 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 and finally Acharon. This is also used a lot on Simchat Torah. When we have lots of people at a Torah station and for the first few that you're reading, it makes sense. But then after a while, you have to say Hosafa because even though you're going back to the beginning of the reading cycle in that case, for those of you familiar with it, when we do Torah stations with Simchat Torah, we rewind, so to speak, back to the beginning of the readings over and over again until everyone at our station has received an aliyah to the Torah. But even as we rewind to the earlier readings, we don't rewind the, the numbering. We don't start over unless we're at a new station. Right? It should be Hosafa, 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 Aharon at where, wherever we are, because there's a certain number traditionally, and then we, we've added, we've added, we've added, it's a last one. Okay, Rick patiently has his virtual hand up, and then Barbara. Hi, thanks. Um, so I had a question, not to be a troublemaker or anything. Yeah. But um, in, in the book, it's printed Shani, Shlishi, Rivi'i. And yes. I always thought those meant second and third and fourth. So when we call people up, uh, why can't we call them up um, by those terms instead of the shniya and the shlishia? I don't even. I'm not even familiar with them. <laughs> um, I, I, I know in the day school they 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 call it up with the the other the other terms. When you get this packet, yeah, it's it's all there. Yeah, we're going to get to this 
next, next week, it's in, so I'm looking at something that's on page eight of this packet. Next week, we're going to look at it on page 12. So if you want to look at it, the folks who are, who are here, uh, and it explains exactly that there's one way to refer to the person coming up for the alias. There are yeah. a variety of ways of calling people up. You're right, yeah. Rick. It's not that's just good. one way. So there are actually a variety of, of ways to call people up. And one of those ways involves um, uh, calling people up uh, using Shnia, and some of those ways do not. So there's Ya'amot so-and-so ben so-and-so Shani, and there's Ya'amot so-and-so bat so-and-so Shnia. Okay? So there are different ways of of, um, referring to that person versus referring to the Aliyah. So it's the grammar of how... We'll get into it next week, but it's whether yeah. you're calling them to a certain aliyah or whether you're calling the person and you're referring to the person as the second person to come to the Torah. It's grammatical nerddom. We're going to get into it next week, and there's a whole page on it, and, yeah. and we'll look through it. Thank you. Uh, absolutely. I'm going to get you in one second, um, Barbara, but before I get to your comment or question, I want to say one more thing, which is there's one more exceptional rule to... Um, to first, second, third, fourth, etc., which is Kohen Levy designation. So there are a series of rules that are preserved in this guide that we'll take a look at. And those rules are rules in regards to, of those aliot, whether you're talking about a day with three aliot, four, five, six, or seven, that the first aliyah was reserved for somebody with Kohen, with a, traditionally for a man with, with Kohen status, and then traditionally for a man with Levi status for the second Aliyah. And there are additional laws governing whether or not one can give away that first Aliyah to just anyone if a Kohen isn't present, etc., etc. In our congregation, as soon as gender egalitarianism became typified in most of our minyanim, and the last one was daily minyan, according to the history I know of the institution, but as soon as it became the typical practice here, it was no longer feasible for us to have that kind of adherence to the Kohen Levy system, because the tradition of inheritance of that status doesn't track in the same way in a gender egalitarian regard. If you want to know more about this, this class and this rabbi is not the one to ask about this. There are some really wonderful rabbis who can teach you all about the inheritance laws and status and Kohen and Levi. I'm not that person. I'm here to teach you liturgy. But what I can tell you is that our community will honor somebody's request if we're able to. We'll do our utmost. Should someone come to us and say, I'm a Kohen, or even in some cases, I'm Bat Kohen. I'd like to take the first Aliyah if possible. We will try to honor that order because to some people, holding on to that personal status is a matter of enormous sanctity in their family. It's pride in their family. Uh, but we don't hold to it as, as something that's so sacred to our community. We honor the sanctity of that status for that individual person or individual family. Does that make sense? I think it makes sense. It certainly has made sense to me so far, but we don't reserve those aliyot um, in that regard. So those are the different ways that we can, let me just review that really quickly. We call aliyot by the names of the number that they are. The first aliyah, the second aliyah, the third aliyah, except for the maftir, which is the aliyah that somebody comes up for, the last one that comes before a haftarah when a haftarah is read, or 
when we split aliyot and have additional aliyot, when we either repeat, like on Simchat Torah, or, or split, and we have hosafa, 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 additional, until acharon, the very last one. And finally, Kohen and Levi. Those are also departures from that idea. Okay, Barbara and then Taibal. Well, just, I've got two comments. Number one is, as long as I've been at the shul, which is about 35 years, the only time that they really put a, a, a Kohen or a Levi in the first two positions was when somebody specifically asked for it. They did not go out specifically looking. They had to have a Kohen because then the, the and, and a lot of times there were a lot, there were a lot of times when the, that Kohen would be up every single week and it wasn't fair to the general population. And, and even when I was gone buying for a long time in the library minion on the high holidays, a lot of times I, I would give the Kohen or the Levy later ones just because there were other people that had done more work for the library minion. And I gave them the, the prominent ones. Yeah. The, the second it was, you know, it was an honor. So I was giving them the highest honor. And then the, the second comment was when, when I first joined here, and I went because my dad had died and I was saying Kaddish every day. And I met somebody that in Arminian and uh, between him and Sam Kellimer, I ended up being bought misfit a, a little over a year after my dad died. And at that time, there were a lot of especially bought mitzvahs in which they had the extra alios, aliot. And so I exceeded it by about seven. <laughs> Because I was honoring all the old boys in the synagogue, in the daily minion. I wanted them to be part of it because I wouldn't have done it without them. But it was not, nobody objected when people did extras. It was, and it was kind of fun to get all the old boys up there. Um, even one, even there was one that would never, when I read Torah, they would never sit in the, in the synagogue, but they actually came up for the Aliyah because it was my bat mitzvah. <laughs> was really touching. It's, it's extremely touching. And I think that's a great example of when Hosafot make lots of sense. They just do when you want to honor a bunch of people. And it takes to go back to that phrase you said, I still see your hand, Taiwa, one second. Um, when um, we were talking about that term that Marshall shared with us, Tircha de Tzibora, we always have to consider, is it a huge burden to the community to add those extra things? When a community accepts it joyfully, when you can see that they're so happy to have people honored, then it's fine, right? You, it's always a, a matter of a value tension. On the one hand, you want to honor people. On the other hand, you don't want to get to Kiddush at 145. So we have to figure things out, but it's a beautiful way that we can extend more honors to more people. It's a tool in the, in the Gabai's toolbox uh, and when we get to the third part, which I haven't even talked about of this class, so like probably the sixth session that we're together, we're going to get to how to correct mistakes. How do you sort of troubleshoot at the BIMA? And that's also something that you can do, right? Sometimes you come up to the BIMA and a person's not here for an aliyah or a person's not here to read an aliyah or you have to split something because someone didn't learn the right thing. And what do you do to correct for that? And it's also a tool. So it's a tool for honoring and it's a tool for um, practical reasons too. All right, Tybal, your turn. Um, I, I'm sorry, I still can't resist, even though I have this feeling that this was supposed to be for people who can actually be a gabai, which I cannot, but 
necessarily. I had never thought about it in a systematic, schematic way about the three, four, five, six, seven, the seven rising to Shabbos. And when you laid that out and I thought about something, I actually got a little shiver because it's all about Shabbos because the days of the week are the same number counted. So the idea that I'd never thought about the days of the week and the aliyot on on Shabbos about how that's intertwined and how that's in a way a signifier for how Shabbos, you know, when my kid was in, um, or in school around, it's just short. And they, I remember one thing in a secular environment that I was asked to come talk about Hanukkah because it was Christmas. And my response whenever I was asked was, well, that's not really comparable. I'll be glad to come talk about Shabbos. Yeah. Anyway, I just, this was just amazing. The, the way it intertwined. I, I totally agree. I often think about that, that days of the week intertwine. I think of that as sort of a drosh grafted on top of that, the Yom Rishon, Yom Sheni and Yom Shlishi as people are coming up. There is something really special about it. And seven, as so many of you know, don't give all the credit to the Zohar. Seven's been around a long time as a great signifier. Okay. I try not to give too much credit to that, to the Zohar. A little credit, but it's not all. Kabbalist. Um, seven has been a really critical signifier for many generations, um, in, for many centuries in Judaism. And that, that seven, um, allows us to, having numbers that are signifiers like that allow us to graft meaning in different layers. You can say, oh, seven aliot and seven days of the week and seven weeks of the Omer and, 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 and we can keep building and building in these concentric uh, circles or in a spiral, if you will. So I want to say one last thing and then I'll just stick around for a couple minutes of questions. And, um, and next week the, the goal will be again about like 30 minutes of teaching and then 15 minutes of questions is what I'm hoping because I know people have to get to bed and get home safely and all that. So, uh, one last thing, which is I want to spend just a moment on Gabai Rishon versus Gabai Shani or not versus. It's not a, boxing match. So um, uh, Gavai Rishon has a different job than Gavai Shani. And uh, the, the Gavai Rishon job is a bit more liturgically intensive. And the Gavai Shani, the secondary Gavai, um, which is, I think, the, the better um, translation, by the way. It's not Gabai 1 and Gabai 2. It's really primary Gabai and secondary Gabai. The primary Gabai's role is to ensure that people are being called up for their roles to the Torah reading table, to the shulchan, trying to drill some vocabulary. So their job is to come up, is to make sure that people are coming up to the table to literally go through the liturgy, which is where we'll start next week, you know, going through that liturgy of the, of being at the Torah table and to call people up to collect their Hebrew names to take care of any other liturgy we're doing up at the Bima, which is part of what we'll go into. We'll probably have just enough time to touch on it next week. No promises, but Amnisha Beirach, right? These other blessings that are done at the Bima, not just for those who are in need of healing, but also all kinds of special occasions. And I want to give some tools just at an advanced level to folks who want to know where can I find Amnisha Beirach for grandparents who come to name their baby, but the 
kids nor the grandkid are in shul, but I want, or in the synagogue, but I want to name the, how do I honor? I, I want to give some tools for that too. That Gabbai Rishon, that's all within their job. In the main sanctuary minion, the rabbi often takes on that role. It's not 100% of the time, but typically the rabbi or sometimes the chazan will take on that role. The Gabbai Shani has a pretty involved role as well. I want to name some of the things that Gabbai Shani does, which might be different at Beth Am than at other synagogues. First is they make sure that all of the ritual objects that need to be on the table are on the table, and the things that are off the table are off. And we'll talk more about that as we go through it. Second thing is they're going to ensure that anybody who's up here at the table has what they need, the tools that they need, in order to say the blessings and to know where they ought to be standing and when they have permission to go back down. They're going to make sure everything from somebody having accessibility up to the bima, that's often the Gabbai Shani's task, um, they might need to run and get a head covering for somebody who doesn't have it, right? Run in, you know, scare quotes, but um, go and get those extra items. The Gabbai Shani is there as like a, a deckhand, a, um, a, what do you call it, like a stagehand, just that, that's closer to the analogy that I was building, stagehand, like stage manager. Um, so it's like more like a stagehand and somebody to come up and hand over and make sure that things are functioning properly, to have a, a second there. And so that the Gabbai shown can say, can you can you go make sure that so-and-so knows they have a six aliyah or is is our Torah reader for the seventh aliyah here? Can you check? And so this is a matter of communication and teamwork between the two. They're also responsible for uh, often um, uh, making sure that some of the things that are a little bit, um, what's the word, uh, parallel to the, the work at the actual Torah table are happening properly. Like when the Torah go, when we go to lift and wrap the Torah, the Gabbai Shani ought to make sure that there is a chair waiting for the person who's going to lift the Torah. So the Gabbai Shani is always looking out to make sure that things are happening in an orderly fashion. The one liturgical piece they may take on is that there's a custom, we'll get there with the liturgy next week, there's a custom that either the Baal or Baalat Kriya, the person reading the Torah, or the Gabbai Shemi chants the Chatzik Kaddish that is said under many circumstances immediately before the last Aliyah or before the lifting of the Torah. It's said towards the very end of the Torah service. Um, there's a wonderful chart. I've never seen a chart like this before in the packet that I'm about to type and send to all of you folks. There's a chart in this packet on page... Hmm, I will find it and I will send it to you. It is in this packet and it is the most remarkable chart. And it is a chart that tells you exactly when Hatsi Kaddish is said under all circumstances. I find it fascinating because there are times when Hatsi Kaddish is not said at all during the Torah service, like... Shabbat Mincha, and then there are times where the Chatzik Kaddish is uh, moved around, like this past weekend when we had two Torahs on the table because of Shabbat Rosh Chodesh, and so it gets gets moved around. I will find it in here and then. Both, both the forty-one, both Gabbai Rishon and and, and um, uh, Shani are also responsible for being sh- uh, that the for following along with the reading and making sure that the reading is done correctly and cor- make corrections. Right. As that that role, that um, oh, it, it's in the, the part that didn't stick to my staple. That's why, partial. <laughs> right. Uh, um, 
yeah, in page 41 um, of the packet. Uh, so um, that's so funny. It just didn't stick in my packet. Yeah, it's, I find this, this is my favorite chart in the whole thing is uh, when Hatsi Kaddish is. I think I'm going to stick it in here and just keep, and keep one. <laughs> um, uh, yes, exactly. So Barbara, the second half of our course or the middle third of this, whatever, the, I'll spend about two or three sessions on exactly that, on correcting the text. That's a big part of the job of the Gabaim once a Torah reader is reading. But Gabaim are primary, before anything else, they have to get this all set up. They have to know how many aliyot are happening, who's called up, what's, uh, what do we call people by, what are they responsible for for the reading. So today we have learned when we read Torah, how many aliyot we read for each of them, what they're called, what we call under weird circumstances, what an aliyah is, what gabaim are responsible for and not responsible for, what the difference is between a gabai who's at the Torah table and a gabai who is a floor gabai, who's more like a, uh, a host bringing people um, up front. And next week, what we're going to do is start in with the liturgy of Gabaut. And we're going to do both the Shabbat. We'll start with Shabbat liturgy of Gabaut of calling up to the Torah. And then also the uh, daily calling up to the Torah. And in addition to those two, we're also going to begin, if we have the time to, to look at the Misha Berachs, the special blessings that are given to people um, in under special uh, circumstances like Ufruf, you know, coming up before a wedding or Shabbat Chatan or Kolah, which is coming up after a wedding, um, which is the tradition for many Spartac communities. Uh, Rick has a question or a comment. Question um, or story. Uh, when I was learning how to read Torah um, by uh, uh, Ashra Milgram, uh, who was the son of uh, Rabbi Jacob and Joe Milgram, okay? He said, um, I was going to Israel. So he said, if if you go to a temple and the Gabbai there starts going on and on and on after you do the Aliyah, and then he pauses to say, Bakbuk Yayin, and then he'll keep going. So it's like after you get an Aliyah in, in this particular shul, um, they blessed you, and then you were going to give a donation of whatever it is. So, so anyway, my my question is: I'd like to get all those little kind of things that a gabai, uh, uh, the Misha Beras, all those when people have a, a birthday or if they uh, the the Gomel. I, I want to go over that and and all those kinds of things to be able to show the kids. But um, I wanted to share that story. That's a great story. So basically what what you're saying, Rick, is that you went to the shul and you knew that the liturgy that was happening was a blessing after you came up for an aliyah and they were asking how much you were pledging to their... Yeah, to well, Asher sure warned me that... That's the bottom partic- line. Yeah, Asher <laughs> warned me. Asher warned me that... That's a very good warning to give you. Yeah, it it is not the custom here. I've been to one synagogue ever. It was in Sfat when I was visiting. I have two relatives randomly in in Israel. I have no other relatives. They're very young, and they he's a shochet in Sfat, and uh, they belong to a large Chabad shul there. And it was up in the Ezrat Nashim, in the balcony portion, and I watched as they did... um, in, in that part, I have no idea what the designation of that particular synagogue was, but they did an elaborate pledge process along with their um, aliyot. It's the only synagogue I've ever been witness to, but it, it is a—it's a strong custom. I don't know if they still do it, but Beth Shalom in San Francisco, when I was a kid, 
on Yom Kippur, every every Aliyah, they would the the person would get a mishaberic and they'd be asked for money for donation. That's right. I, and when you go to the when you go to Marasha, Israel, in in Jerusalem, I like the passive aggressive way that they give you a little card. And when you well, read the card, it tells you you should probably. Money my dad, money. my dad was given an Aliyah on Yom Kippur. And before the services started, because they were doing morning and afternoon services, unfortunately, it was split because of the number of people and the the ability to handle people. Um, The rabbi, who I had known since I was a kid and I was now well into my 30s, came out and said, don't talk to your father about this, but I want you to make a donation for him. So I said, "Okay, I'll give you $100. And I told my dad. So he's up there, and the rabbi's doing the mishaberic, and he starts to give money. And my dad says to him, but Barbara's already made the donation. <laughs> that was the funniest thing. And the rabbi looked at me and said, you weren't supposed to tell him. <laughs> of course you weren't. Yes. I, didn't like I, I love that. Uh, I have now, I've now put the packet that I have uh, lovingly repurposed for this um, in the chat. And I, um, I really look forward to going through some liturgy um, on the website, which you can find through searching the, the resources. So if I handed you this actual packet physically in person, um, the, this um, website also contains all the audio recordings for each example of the liturgy that we're going to begin next week. So I would make it myself, but this congregation already made it. I believe in utilizing particularly an Elul when I'm preparing for the High Holy Days. I believe in utilizing resources that are out there, um, and I will certainly make a donation to their website. You heard I, This is recorded, so now I've pledged it, right? Not just a bottle of wine. I'll make a nice uh, donation to thank them for their awesome playbook, but they have all these recordings online there as well, so they're they're a font of um, cool information on that front. Does anyone have any questions? We can pick up with stories and stuff next week, but anyone have any questions before we close up? Okay, great. Thank you for sticking around. This will go on to the um, uh, podcast and will each week. So if you're going to miss out on a class, then no worries because you'll get this uh, on the podcast if you want to catch it. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.